So I think when the Stoics talk about, you know, managing your emotions, what they're really saying is like, don't get so angry that you just, you know, turn around and punch someone in the face. That's probably not going to solve whatever your problem is, right? It's, it's what, what plan are you going to initiate? How do all the variables interplay with the other variables so you're likely to accomplish what needs to be accomplished? We are here because we know the outcomes in our lives are within our control. That taking absolute ownership of how we eat, sleep, train, think, and connect with each other is how we'll optimize our health and happiness. That chasing excellence is how we grab hold of what is possible. Our mission is to Five, live on the road, always three, chasing, two, never one, stop. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chasing Excellence, uh, lockdown edition, a special edition. Um, not only has Ben somewhere strange, um, but we're we're joined with uh, we're joined by one of our favorite writers, Ryan Holiday. How you doing, Ryan? I'm doing awesome. Thank you so very much for giving us some time today. I know that um, both Ben and I, I think I was thinking before recording that there's probably two people who we reference the most on this show. And one is Stephen Covey and the other is, uh, is you uh, and the work that you do. And so um, it's a it's a uh, it's a treat to have you on. Um, no, that's uh, that, that's high praise. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I think we're going to have a, a bit of a freewheeling conversation. We're recording this on um, on Thursday, the 4th. Um, impossible not to think about, talk about uh, everything that's going on in the world. And so we kind of, we didn't want to have you on the show uh, and pretend that we weren't in the midst of all of this. Um, and so I think maybe uh, just to kind of kick the conversation off, I wonder, um, I think one, one of the things that people um, um, ascribe to stoicism is this idea that you don't care about what's going on in the world or that you're really hands-off and unemotional. And I think that that's something that you've done a really good job of trying to dissuade people from. But I wonder if that's still uh, a central tension that you see in the world as it relates to Stoicism and your work. Um, And how are you thinking about that and talking about that in these uh, uh, precarious times? Yeah, it's, it's, I'm not quite sure where that impression comes from, because to me, it's sort of disputed so clearly in in the writing but 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 much more so in the the lives of the of the actual stoics i mean the the sort of the four main virtues of of stoicism are courage uh wisdom justice and then self-discipline so i understand i guess this idea of self-discipline to people makes you think that you have it can be sort of extrapolated out to mean sort of uh you know totally in control of yourself at all times, ha- have no emotions, don't get too worked up about things. But I mean, th- to me, that inter- the, the reason there's four virtues is they all intersect with each other. Courage is sort of standing up. It's, it's acting bravely. It's throwing oneself into the fray. Ju- justice means, you know, sort of doing, doing the right thing. I mean, Marcus Aurelius uh, writes most famously, um, you know, tr- sort of just that you do the right thing, the rest doesn't matter. And when you look at the actual lives of the Stoics, I mean, if you would have asked, you know, the sort of the tyrants of of, of ancient Greece and Rome, you know, if if they thought this, if you had told them that you thought the Stoics were sort of resigned and passive, they would have been very surprised by this characterization. I mean, uh, they are the sort of constant thorn in the side of the of the of the emperors. They're always agitating for for change, for justice, for 
sort of a, a, a high sort of moral standard. And I mean, look at the, some some of the most you guys are, are are coming to me from from New England. You were telling me that at the some of the most famous lines in the American Revolution. You know, give me liberty, give me death. I regret I have but one life to lose for my country. Uh, these come from the Stoics. These are the um, these are the the patriots of the American Revolution. The people who created a new nation from nothing comes to them from the sort of literature of stoicism and uh and and so yeah th this idea to me that that the stoics sort of never sought out change or simply sort of stuck with the status quo is 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 just a a weird characterization that that I I don't quite understand and certainly don't don't uh sort of try to adhere to in my own life yeah do you think that looking so, you know looking at those four disciplines um the first three are really hard for a lot of reasons, but one, they're really hard because they are, they require the most or the least amount of selfishness. Whereas the self-discipline, um, you can looked at the wrong way, perhaps is you can look at it that uh, very selfishly. Um, you can look at it and, and, and because of that, it's kind of the easiest to grasp, grasp your, your, your hands around or your head around. Do you think that that's perhaps part of why those first three, um, disciplines are, um, maybe get pushed to the back burner? Yeah, I, th I think so. Although it's interesting, right? Like w one of the things you want to do when you look at, at ancient texts, you know, whether it's the Bible or it's Stoicism or, or it's Buddhism, is you want to avail yourself of different translations, right? Because it, it, it's like sort of the, the, the authors are always making all sorts of decisions. And if you sort of just accept one person's characterization, it could give you a limited picture. So, so sometimes that, that virtue is rendered as self-control, Sometimes it's temperance. Mm. Sometimes it's moderation. Um, sometimes, so so I think if we think about it as moderation, it, it becomes really clear that what what that virtue is actually about is balance. And so, for instance, Aristotle talks about this idea of a golden mean. And so for him, he actually uses courage as the virtue to explain moderation. He says that sort of on a spectrum, on one end of the spectrum, there's cowardice. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's there's recklessness. And he says courage mm. is right in the middle of that. And so actually, a lot of the virtues, he says, are midpoints between two vices or two extremes. And so to me, self-control is really important, but it's not the absence of emotion. It's also not giving yourself over entirely to destructive emotions or or being in the sway of your passions. It's having sort of balance and sort of poise and a, and a grasp on what's really important. You know what I mean? Like protesting in the streets because you're angry and because what, you, what we've seen here and what has been going on for far too long is wrong makes complete and total sense, right? Destroying other people's businesses or, or some of the rampant killing and, and, and other forms of violence that are happening in the street, that would, that would obviously be at the extreme end of the spectrum. And, and now you've taken a virtue, which is, you know, responding to injustice and you've created a new injustice. And mm -hmm. so, you know, th these things are not simple or easy. And, and I, I think that's why that, that, uh, you know, the other virtue of wisdom is so important. This is why learning and discussion and, and trial and error is so important. You, you sort of gotta, gotta grope your way there. Mm. Does that, um, that idea of self-control, does that kind of lead into this difference of like where people are being reactionary versus responding? Um, you know, it's uh, this responding to me seems more calculated, thought out, um, 
where reactionary is more visceral, it's more emotional. What would the, you know, um, what if if they ever? I'm sure that they did back in ancient Rome or any other time. What is the take on um, upheaval, social injustice? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's a it's a great question, and and the idea that any of these problems that we're dealing with are new, sort whether it's you know Marcus Aurelius. 15 years of his reign were, were sort of defined by, by what's now known as the Antonine Plague. There was uh, there was a pandemic, there was social unrest, there was sort of a, an immigration crisis. Th these things have always been happening. Um, I, I think what, what, a, what a Stoic tries to think about is what's the best way to make progress um, that doesn't that doesn't sort of in, in, endanger anyone, that doesn't sort of needlessly take risks. But it's still moving the ball forward in some way. So, so I think you know what, what maybe what I would sort of and, and we want to think about these virtues as having a lot of sub virtues underneath them. So I think and this could fit in several of the ones we're talking about. But I think the the ability to be strategic, to think long term, um, to 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 be intentional about what you're doing is really important. And obviously, uh, you know, uh, uh, an activist like Martin Luther King was was really really smart in his ability to have sort of very tangible goals, um, and and his ability to go, we're going to do X. That's likely to incite a response of Y, and our ability to say. Get that portrayed in the media that the, we, the, you know, in a way that makes us seem sympathetic and them seem sort of uh, morally repugnant is going to be really important in that interplay. And so, so I think when the Stoics talk about you know managing your emotions, what they're really saying is like, don't get so angry that you just you know turn around and punch someone in the face. That's probably not going to solve whatever your problem is, right? It's it's. What, what plan are you going to initiate? How do all the variables interplay with the other variables so you're likely to accomplish what needs to be accomplished, right? And, and so, um, you know, the ability to sort of grasp the here and now, to grasp all the factors at play, to, to, to empathize, to understand how what you're doing is going to be perceived by other people. This is really important, whether you're whether you're, you know, sort of an activist leading a protest or whether you're a leader inside of an organization or whether, you know, as we're seeing some backlash today, like, you know, sort of certain celebrities make certain comments. They think that they're helping. They think that they're saying what they, you know, it, what they believe to be true. But they're not really able to step back and think about who the audience for this remark is, how it's going to be perceived, what it's going to be accomplishing, whether it's contributing to the conversation or or hurting the conversation and all that stuff. So, you know, Nassim Taleb, uh, who I really like, he wrote The Black Swan and Anti-Fragile. You know, he, he defines stoicism really well. He defined it as the domestication of your emotions, not the elimination of your emotions. Mm. And, and that that's something I think about a lot. It's not that you it's not that you simply stuff the emotions down and you don't have them. It's that you process them. It's that you have outlets for them. Like for to me, exercise. Like as as a writer, as a strategist, as a as a as a you know ordinary person in the world, having an outlet for my emotions that isn't just my work, um, you know, is really really important. So that way, you know, I I whenever whatever I'm stressed about, like when I go out for a run, whenever I've come back, not only have I turned down the volume a little bit, but I'm also have clarity on what I need to do and what's really important. So how do you, th that's great. I love the, so a couple of questions come out of that. Um, 
first off, I guess the one, the one obvious one is what other, like mechanistically, what other um, ways can people use to help domesticate? And I like that term a lot, domesticate their emotions. Um, so, so a big one for me is every morning I, I sit down and I, I, I spend some time with a journal. And, and stoicism and journaling are almost like impossible to separate. Mar Marcus Aurelius' Meditations, which I think is one of the most beautiful books, you know, sort of ever produced, uh, I have it here, um, wasn't actually, uh, you know, intended to be a book in any way. It was, it was the private thoughts of the emperor of Rome, never expecting them to be published. And so, you know, the, the, the his, you, we can imagine how stressed he was, the things that upset him, the things he was worried about. You know, he went through all sorts of turmoil in his in his, in his personal life. He, several of his children died. You know, uh, his reputation was attacked. It, just all the things you go through as a leader, and 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 so he was spending this time putting his thoughts down on the page, getting some distance from them. You know, sort of venting. To me, that that's a, a really great way to do it. And then from there, there, there's this, it seems to be this dichotomy, and maybe this is my my elementary understanding of it, but this um, th these two ends of serenity now, I'm at peace with myself and the surroundings going around me, and um, not standing for injustice. How do you create the, where is like the, this is inside my control, this is not outside my control, I'm spinning my wheels and getting myself into a fervor about something that I can't affect versus... No, regardless of how big the situation is, I'm going to try and do even my tiny little part. Where do we kind of like lean into that? Well, you're, you're, you're totally right to define it as a dichotomy. So in, inside stoicism, they call this the dichotomy of control. And it, it's sort of, you have this the, uh, Epictetus, who's a, a slave, uh, a former slave. Uh, he defined, he says, you know, the first task in life for the philosopher, he says, is to separate things that are up to us and things that are not up to us. And so you can imagine in his in his case scenario, he 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 has to accept that he is enslaved. Right. Uh, and, and, and let's say there, you know, we don't know the particulars of a situation, but let's say there's there's no viable way he can escape from this slavery. He also knows for instance, that as 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 a part of the slavery he endured, he was permanently crippled in, in his leg. His his master sort of viciously and brutally broke his leg. Um, you know what other th 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 we can we could uh, hypothesize a number of other facts, right? Maybe he's short. Maybe he's bald. You know, he lives in whatever year he's alive. You know, uh, Nero is the emperor. There's all these sort of facts of his existence, right? Um, just like today, I woke up and it was hot. You know, I woke up and, uh, you know, any number of things. Right. So those are all the things that are outside your control. And the Stoic wants you to sort of accept them unflinchingly for what they are. And then we say, but I still control how I respond to these things. I still respond what I, I still control what I am going to do next, what I'm going to do now. And so, you know, for Epictetus, it was, I'm going to educate myself as much as possible. You know, he says, like, just because I'm physically enslaved, mentally, that doesn't mean that I'm uh, enslaved. And he would look around in Rome and he would see all these rich people who had complete freedom. 
And yet he says, why are they, you know, uh, you know, kissing the emperor's ass? Why are they, you know, going from party to party? Why are they chasing pleasure after pleasure? You know, he's, he's saying these people think that they're free because they're physically free, but mentally they're not. And so he says, OK, I'm physically free, but I'm going to focus on getting as much sort of mental and spiritual freedom as possible. Freedom from anger, freedom from fear, freedom from resentment, so on and so forth. So so that, that really is the dichotomy. We want to separate these things into the, what we control and what we don't control. And we want to focus on on, on what we control. And, and I think just on a practical level, for instance, what most people spend a, in in inordinate amount of time on that's not in their control is the past, right? So we're angry about what's happened. You know, we're upset about what was said. We regret mistakes. You know, we we, we want to point the fingers. And then conversely, people spend a lot of time worrying about the future, you know, fearing things that may or may not happen. And what they're neglecting is this sort of moment in time in front of them where they can act either to you know, move forward from the past or protect themselves or embrace, you know, the potentials of the future. And so, so that's what we're trying to do. Does that, um, potentially lead to any, any sort of problematic situations where people are not learning the lessons of the past, they're not planning and preparing for the future and they're living just in the moment. Like what is that very, like kind of like a hippie state, you know, kind of just like, just like love and peace now. No, I don't think we're talking about this sort of Zen Buddhist emptiness. Uh, I, I think, you know, you can't read the Stoics and not see that they have a, a, a very deep understanding and fascination with history. Again, if wisdom is, is, is that key virtue, of, of course, you have to study the past. Right. I think I think that here, here's an example. Uh, sometimes I'll get in a discussion with my wife or something will happen. We'll, we'll, you know, we'll just be going around and around and around about it. And then my wife will say something like, uh, what do you want? You know, and and she says, I think what you want is for this not to have happened, hmm. and that's like exactly <laughs> what I want. But that's not possible, right? Like, like what what I'm arguing is not how are we going to do this differently. I'm not arguing, you know, what's the solution. I'm not arguing, you know, here's here's what would make me feel better or whatever. What I'm arguing is how can we go back in time and not have done this or whatever, which is of course not only impossible, but totally unfair and a complete waste of everyone's time. So, uh, you know, you're getting emotionally worked up and you're you're expending a lot of energy, but you're actually accomplishing nothing. Meanwhile, what you're neglecting is you could be sitting there talking about, okay, why did it go this way? How do we not do this anymore? What what plans are we going to put into effect so this doesn't happen again? So, yeah, it's more about if you're looking back, it's more about trying to root causes than just going to um, what was me wish this didn't happen. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I think that's right. I mean, you know, the, those who ignore history are doomed, doomed to, to repeat it. I think that the Stokes were, were very aware of that. I mean, and, and one of the things you see the Stokes study the past for. I quote this in my book, Ego is the Enemy. Uh, Bismarck talks about, he says, you know, any fool can learn by experience. I prefer to learn by the experiences of others. So we study the past and we and we and we and we we want to benefit as much as possible. We want to avoid as many things as we can. But, you know, there are going to come a time where where we do learn lessons the hard way. And the one way to make that worse is to not learn is, you know, to 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 ignore the the information that you've been given. Um, that, that leads me to one of the things that I, that I want to talk to kind of both of you about, because I think I, I consider both of you very good um, 
and I, this is kind of a broad term, but kind of both very good about thinking strategically about, um, and whether that's work or whether that's, you know, Ben, the, the things that you're doing, um, and Ryan, you know, your books and, and all the work that you're doing. How do you guys, given that we're in such a, a an uncertain, unprecedented time, how do you, how are you guys thinking about what can I do today, tomorrow to prepare myself, to think strategically, to put myself in a position where I'm, um, I can take advantage of whatever comes in a month, three months, three years or whatever. Again, given all of the uncertainty and all of the unknowns that we're all kind of living through, how are you guys navigating the the way you've always thought about living strategically and working strategically and uh, you know, inside of the, the, the constraints that we're all living under. Ben, you go. <laughs> all right. So, um, it, 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 we have kind of two major things happening right now in the world. There's the, the COVID pandemic. Um, we, everyone's kind of beat that to a dead horse. Um, I actually think it pales in comparison to what's happening in this country right now in terms of, um, the, the social injustice that's happening. Um, here's, Kind of go uh, to Ryan's point before about learning from uh, the mistakes of the past and rooting causes. This is um, this has been. A, I'm going to be really frank and vulnerable here. This has been a, uh, one of the hardest weeks of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I have um, realized how blind I have been to what's going on in our country. Um, I um, because I don't watch the news. Because I don't, um, I, I have because I am I don't have any racial biases in me at all. I didn't think that this was something that was real anymore, um, and it's I've been slapped in the face, and I feel so angry, sad, heartbroken, frustrated, and helpless. I don't know. So you're asking what the strategic move is? I have no freaking idea what to do. Um, other than to stop realizing that this isn't something Mm. and to say that awareness is always the first step in everything. And I've had, um, you know, because of what's been going on, I've, I've taken the action of starting to dig into this and like, what is this all about? And because I don't watch the news, I finally went back and watched George Floyd's killing you know, I watched the video of it and it's, it's horrific. And then you, um, you know, you go into, um, joggers being shot out of the back of pickup trucks. And then you realize it's not those two things. Like this is something that's happening in our country all the time, everywhere. Um, had some conversations with some of my black friends and because I never thought it was a thing, I've never talked about it. I've never brought it up. I've, and because I'm so sensitive to not coming across that way, I don't even use the word racism or black or people of color or racism. Those words have, honestly, I cannot remember this week ever saying those words out loud or writing them down on a piece of paper. Never in my life. And because it was such a thing that we didn't talk about. And we're realizing now the only plan of action going forward is awareness. And I don't know how to create awareness other than starting a conversation. And what I would say and what I would ask, this is my, if I'm going to be any bit strategic whatsoever, my ask is that people, white people, which is again, a term I've never used before, Mm -hmm. white people, white people, people that have white privilege, 
That is a real thing that I did not know existed. I didn't know what that was. White privilege is real. We all have it. Is we start to realize and recognize how unfair that is. You know, I, I started asking, I just called up one of my friends yesterday and was like, um, what's going on? Why is this happening? I don't understand this. And um, he told me, and he told me about all the injustices that he's experienced in his life. And I cried. Like, I haven't, cri I haven't cried. I haven't cried in like 10 years. Like, I, I'm just not who, that's not true. I cried after the CrossFit Games when, one time. Um, <laughs> besides that, that was, I mean, it's like, it brought out all this emotions. And, you know, um, the, the take home is, and I'm not here to be on a soapbox, is I have no idea what the right thing is or say or do. And I'm probably as confused as the next person, um, but I'm not going to be silent anymore. Um, I'm going to start with that. No, I think, I think that's, I think that's very well said. I mean, uh, it, it, it's, it, it, it's easy to, to see these things and sort of go that, that doesn't, that doesn't affect me, you know, that, 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 and, and I think a, a lot of people, myself included, have sort of been able to, to, to sort of tell yourself that this, this is this sort of small problem on the side. You know, of course, racism exists. You know, of course, there are injustices in the world, but it's not really a priority. It's not a big deal. You know, I think that that, that can be where your mind wants to go because the, the, if it doesn't go there, then you have to look and face something that's sort of deeply unpleasant. And, and I think in some ways, very hopeless, right? Like if the problem is small, then you have hope that it will resolve itself. If the problem is per, pervasive and enormous and and sort of faceless and nameless, then then you know maybe there's nothing you that can be done. And so I think we sort of go towards the more optimistic view naturally. For for me, I, I went to the, the one of the protests here in Austin on on Sunday, and I think what one of the things that struck me about it was uh, obviously the, a, a whole bunch of things struck me about it. But but it struck me that, you know, probably since I was, you know, a kid, uh, and I was a kid that got in trouble and messed around and stuff, I really haven't had any interactions with the police on uh, on a on, on any sort of, uh, you know, occasionally you get pulled over for a speeding ticket. And the worst, you know, the worst thing is that maybe you get uh, maybe you get a, a you have to pay a fine or whatever. But it was it was standing next to these police, sort of why you know seeing them you know with with pepper spray out and batons out and you know assault rifles and shields and and you you it, it my 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 father was a police officer growing up so I've always had a sort of a very positive feeling uh, or or sort of image in my mind of of uh, uh, of police officers and so when when you're standing you know a few feet away from what's essentially an army and an army that's treating you along with everyone else as a, as the enemy it really changes your perception and you can empathize much more immediately with this idea of being afraid of the police and and and, and, and so this isn't in somebody's head. This has been a slow and steady increase in the sort of in an antagonistic, you know, sort of stance that the police has towards the public. So, I mean, I, I think when we when we when we talk about being strategic, you know, aware, awareness is a huge part of it. And 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 and, and you know, having written about this a little bit o over the years and then more recently, the other thing you realize, I, I think one of the reasons I haven't written about it as much as I would I, I probably should have is is I would tell myself everyone gets this right. Like this is obvious. Like 
And then so I wrote this piece on Wednesday that I, I tried to talk about it, not not even from a race standpoint. I tried to I tried to not talk about race. I tried to talk about it from a human rights standpoint, which is that, look, if the state can kneel, can find a way to kneel on somebody's neck for nine minutes and squeeze the life out of them while they're begging for their mother uh, and, and for air, you know, if 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 a, a, a guy jogging jogging down the road completely innocently or, you know, as other people have tried to say that maybe he had broken into a house, who gives a shit, right? If you can be gunned down in the street and then and then the prosecutors look at that evidence, which is obvious and on video and says, oh, maybe this was uh, justified. You know, um, if, if the state can find a way to do that to one person, to one community, the reality is they can find a way to do that to any community. And when you there's a famous poem uh, from a from a from a Christian pastor in Nazi Germany, you know, he basically sort of goes along with Hitler and goes along with Hitler. And, and he writes this poem after. And, you know, he says, like, uh, when they came for the communists, I did not speak up because I was not a communist. When they came for the socialists, I did not speak mm -hmm. up because I was not a socialist. When they came for the trade unionists, I did not speak up because I'm not a trade unionist. When they came for the Jews, I did not speak up because I'm not a Jew. And then he says, and when they came for me, there was nobody left. Right. And and so I was trying to write about it from that point of view, because I wanted to I, I wanted to reach some people that maybe weren't being reached. And I was both amazed and appalled at how people could still find something objectionable about that view. Like like so even when you don't like one way to know that someone is a racist, and I, I don't mean this in like the segregationist sense, I just mean someone who, who tries to, to separate people into different races, is if you're talking about something and you're not talking about race, and then they inject race into it for no reason, you know, they go like, like so if you're talking about the killing of George Floyd, and then somebody says, well, what about all the black people that kill black people? That that's what a racist thinks, right? Because what a racist what, what you're trying to do is justify why you don't have to care about this thing. Mm. So so anyways, what what I meant to say is that you realize that not everyone gets it, and so talking about it is really important. But also as a society, we're going to have to be strategic and decide what do we want to accomplish and in what order are we going to try to accomplish those things? So number one, it was great yesterday that they announced that they've arrested all three of the other police officers and they upped the charge from third degree to second degree murder. But what are the other objectives? And, and I can list a couple of them. I'll leave them to listeners to sort of put in the order that they think, because it's got to be a discussion, which is so I think one, um, we need to get rid of what they're calling sort of broken window policing that like. Nobody needed to be arrested for the potential passing of a twenty to a fake twenty dollar bill, even if that was happening. Right? It, that that is a made up clash. We do not need armed citizens chasing people down who may or may not have been broke, breaking into a house un, under construction. Right? We don't need neighborhood watch people to chase down kids in hoodies and shoot them to death. And we don't. We need. We need to 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 rat, You know, massively decrease the sort of pressure that we're putting on policing. Number one. Number two, uh, we need to reduce the militarization of the police departments. These, these people do not need armed Humvees and, you know, enormous trucks and things like that. Um, and, and, you know, I think I think you, you could keep going down the list. There, there's a number of other things that we need to focus on. Uh, you know, we need jobs programs. You know, we need the ability uh, the police cannot investigate themselves. You know, uh, we, we need, I think, some some federal police brutality laws, stuff like that. The point is, 
awareness, number one. But then the next thing, if we're, if we're talking about being strategic, it's got to be what are the policy objections that we are going to put into uh, into place so this happens less often. It can't just be that we're posting, you know, black squares on our social media accounts. Mm -hmm. um, Ryan, you said yeah, something. It's, um, uh, go ahead, Ben, if you got something. I was going to say, um, I love it. I love the actionables. I love the the direction. I love the actual, like, um, that's something that's going, like, check the box. It can happen, which is so phenomenal. It's putting literally, like, the next step beyond the awareness of, like, the, just the, the, the campaign. Um, the thing that we need to do as well is to realize this isn't just a police thing as well. This of is course. a societal thing that, um, um, you know, it's – Everyone and the, the the great thing about that's coming out of this, and yes, it is um, trying times, and there is um, peaceful protests that are um, getting mauled by police, and then there are violent riots that are um, looting and destroying businesses. Neither of which of those things are are condoned, but yet they bring. And I mean, I'm not condoning it at all, but they do make you pause and stop, and that's what's kind of interesting about this. The second part of that is it's part of the grieving process. So, you know, it, it, which is what I'd like to ask uh, Ryan about, um, you know, in terms of that grieving process, what does Stoics say about, you know, like the way you go through this? And one of the, the stages of, of grief is anger. And what mm -hmm. do you just, are you supposed to just bottle that up? Or um, and if you do, if you bottle too long, does it manifest itself in what we're seeing now? Or what would, what would be the approach to that? Yeah, no, I think I think that's a great a great question. I mean, look, I think there's a we we make as a society and have for a very long time as a civilization made a distinction between getting justice and getting revenge, right? So something mm. horrible happens, somebody does something that's completely inexcusable, that's a, a gross violation of human rights, that's one of the most sort of disturbing. That that image is going to be as disturbing and as iconic as that is that uh, you know that that famous photo from Vietnam with the with the 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 gun to the guy's head? I mean, that's going to be an iconic image of this century, unfortunately, uh, and, and but also deservedly. Um, but there's a difference between revenge, you know, which is like destroying buildings and you know shooting people and and hurting people, and then there's justice, right? And ju justice is you know how do you how do you sort of uh, punish? Uh, uh, fairly and and within the confines of the law, the, the people who did what happened, and then how do you adjust the under how do you address the underlying factors that that sort of made made this happen? So you know that expression, sort of revenge is a dish best served cold. I, I wrote this book a few years ago called Conspiracy, which is sort of a, a book about revenge, um, and and I, I thought a lot about that expression. I thought, why is that true? There there are no dishes that are good colds, right? That's not what the the it's it's the we think that means that the food is cold. No, what it means is that if the dish is hot, it burns your hands, mm. right? So like you 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 don't grab the dish out of the oven with your bare hands. That's how you burn it. So so it's about time and patience to do what you need to do. Um, I, I think I think one of the things we've made a huge mistake on as a society, and, and actually you know what that's not fair because we're not to blame. The leadership of this country has made an enormous mistake, which is. These people are very upset. And, and by these people, I include myself. Everyone is very upset. So well, why are they still rioting and, and protesting and, you know, uh, you know, taking to the streets 10 plus days later? 
Well, that's because from the very beginning, they've been antagonized by the president, by uh, governors, by uh, police departments. I mean, these people, uh, and again, we, so I keep saying these people, we are in the streets protesting police brutality and it's being met with police brutality. Like you can't, ex yeah. you can't expect uh, people to go, hey, okay, they get it. Let's go back to our house and then handle this legislatively uh, when when it's clear that you not only so don't get it, that you're doing it right now as we're talking. Right. That's like that's like beyond beyond ridiculous. And so, um, you know, you, you can't it, the message is 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 clearly not getting through. And and it, it weirdly. I think, you know, people are going, OK, this is just one, you know, they go, George Floyd is just one person. Actually, the, the statistics are are not that bad for this year. You know, we're trying to it's like, no, 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 no. People have taken to the streets with this set of grievances. And the response has been to confirm all those grievances in every single way, um, you know, and look like it took it took almost nine days for the other three police officers to be charged which should have been automatic, right? And so so like we're we're not like halfway through this. We're like at step 0.5 on like a 10 step process. So so it I mean where I get a, a little worried is like there's a massive public health risk to people being out in the streets protesting during the middle of a pandemic. On the other hand, I totally understand and I put most of the blame not on the protesters but on the leadership who who don't see the stakes of what's happening. It's like there's a ticking time bomb and we're arguing over, you know, who put it there instead of diffusing the time bomb. Right. And, and resolving the situation. So, I mean, I, I think and, and for people who think this is getting a little too political, I think the, the pandemic showed this, the, the response to these shootings and, and, and this violence has shown this. We are, what we are really experiencing right now is a catastrophic failure of leadership across the board, across parties at the at the human level like people uh, when things break down people are supposed to step up and do the right thing even if you take heat for it even if it's unpopular even if it like uh, that's that's something i, I think has been pointed out well it's like who are these senators that are afraid to challenge the president on things it's like the worst case scenario here is you don't get reelected and then you have a cushy post office life. Like, you know what I mean? We're not we're not even talking about like, you know, challenging, you know, Julius Caesar and and you know the the risk is death. Like there's no like we've we've become so cushy as a society, this comes back to that virtue of courage, that nobody has the courage to even say what is obviously true and obviously on their minds. Like you're telling me nobody thought it was a bad idea for the president to walk across the street and have to, you know, uh, uh, disperse protesters using the military for a, for a lame photo op. Nobody in the White House thought that was a bad idea. I, I don't think that's possible. I think most people thought it was a bad idea, even though I disagree with a lot of those people politically. What I know from my study of history is that people don't like to speak up because they think it will cost them something. So everyone is preserved, protecting themselves and then ironically endangering everyone in so doing. Um, one of the, when, I, when I read a lot of your stuff, Ryan, um, if you read it, I don't know that it's intended this way, but when you read it through a perspective of um, it being a study of leadership, um, I, 
I guess what I'm saying is that when you read it, you can get a lot out of it that perhaps isn't um, right on the surface. And I wonder, um, kind of to both of you, because I know it's, you know, Ben, we talk about leadership a lot on the show. Um, what what kind of um, tactically, like, how do we all become better leaders, even if we're leading ourselves, even if we're leading the three people in our house? Um, what can you, what can both of you guys help us uh, figure out as it relates to uh, um, in, improving the leadership in whichever, in whatever way that we, we can, whatever way that's kind of within our control. Ben, I'll take it again. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. So I think that, um, we rely on the rules that have been set forth in humanity for thousands of years, call them principles, call it ethics, call it, um, the governance of being a good human being from the Bible, from whatever it might be. And you use those principles to guide your actions, decisions, and behaviors. And my litmus test for this is if the decision is easy, but the action is hard, you're probably on the right track. Mm. So usually when that happens, you go like, um, what's the right thing to do here in this situation? Well, the right thing to do is to immediately arrest and charge those officers. The right thing to do is immediately go out into the streets, go to Minneapolis, elite the leadership, go to Minneapolis, go and meet with the people that are so pissed off, be a healer, do the right thing. Now, that's really hard. You're gonna have to put yourself out there and be like, my police officers were wrong. We did the wrong thing, you have to take ownership. But the decision's real easy because it's in line with principles that have been in line forever. Be responsible, take ownership. It's not about you. Your ego is the enemy. Nice little plug there. <laughs> you know, you get it. It's like from there, it's about then from there, following through on the action now is going to be, it's gonna hurt. It's gonna be really hard. It's tough to do that. But if you go the other way, like what Trump's doing to call it out, he's taking, the decisions are probably hard. There probably is debate in the White House, but what should we do? And they fall back on, well, let's just do this because it's easier. I feel like well, that's just the, the always the worst worst case scenario. Well, so ben, if you what, mess up with your with anybody, what's the easiest thing to do? Sweep it under the rug, pretend it didn't happen. Like that, that's the easiest thing to do. The hardest thing to do is call it out, have the discussion, try to fix it, swallow your pride, and be be present for the for the to come out of this thing better than it was before like your job for a leader is not about you it's about to take individuals teams or organizations to places that they didn't think they could or just could not go on their own not the opposite well ben what i think you're really talking about is character right and and the the, the stoics were fond of, of a saying which comes to us from heraclitus who's a sort of poet in, in, in the sort of pre-Socratic days, he said, character is fate or character is destiny. So who you are as a person, like sort of at your rock bottom core, like what, what are the principles you've cultivated as you were saying, Ben, what's the standards you hold yourself? What's the image you have of yourself? This ultimately determines who you are in these stressful moments when everything is laid bare. And I think what we're suffering from, you know, whether you're looking at Trump, uh, you know, on the Republican side or whether you're looking at at, at sort of, uh, you know, de Blasio in New York, like if you don't have strong character, if you don't really stand for something, if you don't know what's important, uh, you're going to make bad decisions. And again, I think it's so easy to dump on Trump. But like, you know, de Blasio. 
I think a, a famous less, you know, lower stakes example of this is, you know, moments before uh, de Blasio shuts down New York City in March uh, d d uh, during for, for the pandemic. He sneaks off to the gym, right? He what what he's and 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 before this, I don't know if you remember that time when Chris Christie, who was the governor of New Jersey, locks down all the beaches. I forget why. And then there's there's a photo of him and his family, uh, you know, sitting at the beach. These these are not just bad optics decisions. You know, as a society, we watch we watch the news and these talking heads. They just debate over and over again, like, what are the optics of this? How is this going to play for his campaign? When really, what we should be talking about is. Is this a high character or a low character person, right? Is this a move of character or is this a move that illustrates a lack of character? And I think as a society, and 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 this this alarms me most, is that for instance, the church, which is supposed to be this bastion of character, this this sort of a place that forms character um, has has become almost a politicized institution where it thinks primarily about, you know, and and this is this is true across organizations, but I think it's it's become particularly egregious with the church. People think, is this politician going to help me get my policy uh, goals in? You know, are they going to help me ram my policy goals down the throat of my opposition? Is this person going to help me do what I want? When when although that is important, are they going to help me do what I need? That's why I'm giving them my vote. Um, we we also have to be asking ourselves, is this a person of character? Right. Um, there's a there's a famous story that I think is a famous fable that illustrates this idea of characters fate. It's the it's the frog and the scorpion. And ironically, Trump told a version of this story when he was campaigning for president. So we shouldn't be surprised. But it's the you know, the, the scorpion asked the frog for a ride across a pond. And the frog says, I'm not going to give you a ride. You're going to sting me. And uh, the scorpion says, no, I won't do it. I won't. And the frog says, I don't believe you. And the and the and the scorpion says, I promise I'm not going to sting you. And so the frog says, OK, hop on my back. Let's swim across the pond. And as they're swimming across the pond, the, the scorpion stings them. And as as they're both, you know, uh, uh, drowning in the water, uh, the frog says, why did you do it? And he says, because I'm a scorpion. Right. And and that 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 is what ca character is fate. When someone tells you who they are over and over and over again, that's what you're going to get from them. And we as a society have not done a good job picking leaders uh, in in all forms, whether it's the entertainment business, whether it's in religions, you know, whether like whether it's in um, you know political leadership, like we we have not valued character. We value does this person say what I want them to say, and then we're surprised when they betray us and everyone else and do a generally a really bad job during a crisis. Um, we've got some listener questions, but before we get to them, um, one one kind of last question for maybe both of you. Um, we've talked a lot. We've talked about um, a lot of things today, but the one of the things that I think is um, connects a lot of it is this idea of developing um, developing self awareness, um, right? Um, you know, Ryan, you talked about journaling. I know that that's something that that Ben has done or or does um, frequently. <clears throat> Um, and we've talked about leadership and we've talked about character. And one of the things that you said, Ryan, you said, um, I think you were talking specifically about uh, the idea or, or the, the, you know, racism or, or something within that and the idea of looking at something unpleasant. Um, and I wonder if maybe we can we can kind of get your get both of your takes on this idea of like, how do you get better at looking at the unpleasant, especially when the unpleasant is uh 
part of your character, or maybe it's a character flaw, you know, part, you know, um, part of your, uh, how you respond, how you reacted to something versus how you wish you would, would have responded to it. Is it as simple as journaling? And if it's, if it is great, if it's not, what else can somebody start to implement practice so that that self-awareness increases so that that character improves so that the leadership improves, et cetera, et cetera. Well, so, so Ben, to, to give you some credit on, on what sounds like it's been a hard week, you know, that's not what most people do in situations like this. Most people, when challenged, when faced with something unpleasant, when faced with a glimpse of their own complicity or, you know, uh, indifference, double down. We, 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 we retreat back inside the tribe. We retreat back into our own, our, our, our own, uh, our own bad habits. So we don't have to face that, you know, sort of people will do just about anything to not have to look in the mirror. I I talk about this in my ego book, Uh, you know, often what will happen because things threaten our ego is we stuff them down. We hide from them. We ignore them. And, they, 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 they bubble up. And, and I think, you know, this George Floyd thing is a great example of like, it's not as if there weren't other videos over the last several years. And then, of course, events over the last, you know, sen- several centuries of American history that didn't give us a sense that this was lurking below the surface. But we ignored it and we ignored it and we ignored it. And then, it, it, you know, it, it exploded all over us. When you when you shut truth up and you ignore it, it 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 multiplies exponentially and and it becomes much less stable. And so um, I I think you you do have to look in the mirror. I think one thing I would, uh, you know, there's this thing going around uh, these days, I think partisan news on both sides of the spectrum really exacerbates it. But but we call it whataboutism. Mm -hmm. So it's like when you see some someone else or something else bad, you go, but what about X? And it's this idea that something else bad cancels out the other bad thing, and then you can just go back to your life, right? And and like for instance, the the killing of George Floyd, uh, the, the the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, uh, these are horrible things. The the killing of that police officer, uh, I I think it's in St. Louis, or I'm I'm not sure where it was exactly, but the the killing of that that retired police captain uh, by looters, also really really horrible. It's it's interesting to me that people want to bring that third one up as a way of not having to deal with the the already ongoing discussion about the first two, right? Just of just as of course it, it would be ridiculous and and dishonest and cruel to ignore the third one because you're so focused on the second one. Like killing is 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 wrong. Period. Murder is wrong. You know. Uh, you know. Violence is wrong. Uh, chaos and disorder is wrong. But but I guess what I would say is you one of the things on the sort of path to wisdom on learning is when you find yourself having really strong reactions uh, about things, um, you 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 have to face that and deal with it. What you can't allow your sort of the, you can't allow your cognitive dissonance to 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 trick you into not having to deal with it. And that's just a really tempting thing. Like the world is complex. It's contradictory. Very few people are all good or bad. You know, uh, bad people do good things. Good people do bad things. You know, uh, good trends are happening simultaneously while bad trends are happening. And so if you think that you can reduce this all to very simple narratives that it's always going to confirm or coalesce along exactly the lines you want it to be, you're not being honest with yourself 
you're you're part of the problem more than you're part of the solution. And and so uh, you know, and and you're you're probably going to have a blind spot to to your own you know your your own flaws and weaknesses. And so I think I think that's a really important thing. It's a it's a really important question that you asked as well. Um, ben, what do you think about the idea of, um, I guess, simply developing more self-awareness? Yeah, I mean, I think the word is kind of like self-explanatory. It starts with that awareness thing. Like you can't just kind of like be coasting through life and letting things happen to you, around you, or you doing it yourself. You have to become um, – I, I, I'm trying to – I'm not as eloquent as right. You know, you have to become self-aware. <laughs> like you, have to, you just have to um, – you have to realize what's going on. And then I think the, the, the second piece of that, which is what I realized was my fault was, is um, you have to get educated a little bit, a little bit about like for the, like just check out what the what others are saying and thinking. And you don't have to agree with them at all. Just check out what they're saying. And um, with no bias, no um, no preconceived conclusions and just um, listen have the conversation. And if you don't agree with them after a long enough conversation, like, okay, you've probably fortified your, your, your side even more. But if you, that's only going to work if you go into that. And the problem that scared me off for so long about all, like the reason it's like politics, politics is just to me, it sucks because no one is there to try to make things right. They're trying to get their way. And when you're trying to get your way, you're not there for the greater good or the great, you're even trying to improve yourself. And until it's about betterment, you know, it's really, it's about, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to back up. I, I think that even before the awareness thing, it starts with Carol Dweck's growth mindset. If you think that everyone is born a certain way or to be a certain thing, you're kind of done. You've been pigeonholed. You put yourself in a box and all you're going to do is try and defend that box to your death. What you need to do is open up the box, realize that there's other things going on. You are not your DNA. It is, you know, you can um, change most things about your life. And the first and foremost of those is your ideas. Like your ideas are just, you don't need to hold on to them. Uh, there was a great quote. I wish I could, but I was actually watching the Beastie Boys um, um, documentary. And it's awesome by Spike Jones. It's on Netflix. And um, uh, I think it's MCA. At one point, there's a critic that crawls him out and goes, um, you realize what you're doing is being a hypocrite. And he said, I'd rather be a hypocrite than stick to ideals I don't believe in anymore. That's just like, that's so money. Like, I love that. Like, what's wrong with being a hypocrite? Like, being a hypocrite means that you're learning, you're growing, you're changing. And if you have that I, that take, like, it's just like, if you had asked me a couple of years ago, I'd be like, there, you know, racism is is overblown. That's honestly what I probably would have said. And now I look at the former self of me and I like, I want to punch him in the face. Like I am so disgusted with myself for thinking that, but because I thought that I'm not going to hold on to those ideals. I'm willing to adopt, adapt and change and not to say I'm a picture of change or anything like I struggle with this just like everyone else does. And it takes really hard weeks and sometimes getting slapped in the face to realize you were wrong. No, look. I mean, ch changing your mind is a, is a virtue, not a vice. And and I don't. I wouldn't. I would never want people to conflate that with uh, with hypocrisy, right? Hypocrisy is saying one thing and then continuing to do another, right? If you believe one thing and you act consistently with that, 
and then and then at a later point, someone shows you better evidence. You know, Marcus Realis actually talks about this in meditations. He says, you know, somebody who shows me where I've been wrong has not done me wrong. They've helped me. Right. And so so I, I think, you know, anyone that's mad uh, that, that somebody changed their mind is is not only being ridiculous, but is 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 actually arguing against what they say they want to happen, which is they want progress and they want change, and that only happens by getting people to change, uh, you know, change their mind. And so, yeah, like uh, if the the other the other thing I think about is like I look back at things that I, I've said in the past or things that I believed in the past, and I and I and I, I sort of shudder at them now, uh, and then I go wait. You know, I've been on the planet for 10 additional years or 20 additional years. It would be ridiculous and embarrassing if I still only believed what I randomly heard from my parents when I was 17 years old. You know, like like if I if I haven't gone out and staked out new ground and learned for myself and, and added, frankly, to what, you know, they were able to give me, then then, you know, you're not doing this life thing right. And I think that's true politically, but it's also true as a business. If you're still running your business the exact same way that you were when you started it, I mean, what was the benefit of all the experience that you had? You know, if you're not, if you're not changing and growing, like you're, what are you doing? You're either, you're either staying the same or you're getting worse, you know? And, uh, I would argue you're probably getting worse because the world is changing. Mm. All right. We're going to just do a couple. So, so Ryan, we, um, we do something here called the two minute drill, which is when I, uh, when listeners send me questions and then I, um, I force Ben to ask, to answer complex questions in two minutes. Um, so that's what we're going to do here. We'll, we'll only okay. do maybe two or three. Um, first one, what is your fitness regime and how do you apply stoicism to your workouts? If at all? Yeah, that's good. Uh, so I run bike or swim, uh, pretty much every single day, uh, during the quarantine, I, I do it in the middle of the day because my son only naps when we're moving. Mm. So uh, I, I, I either take him in a bike trailer or I, t- today I, I went for a run. So I do some form of strenuous exercise every day. I don't really do a lot of weightlifting, CrossFit stuff anymore, uh, although I've liked it. I, I need as a writer sort of solitude and yeah. quiet. And so it, it tends to if I do CrossFit, I still have to go running. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, I just don't have the time to work out twice every day. Got it. Um, Ben, I won't ask you that question because I know the answer. Um, Next one. What are the, uh, what are the, what are three stoic philosophies or principles that you'd recommend somebody integrate into their practice during the quarantine? Uh, That's a good one. So I'd say waking up early is a, is a big important one. I think you, you know, there's a, a, an awesome passage in meditations at the opening of book five where Marcus has this sort of debate with himself about getting out of bed and not staying under the covers. I think journaling is a big one. The third one, uh, I, I, I do this every day. It's, it's called memento mori. And it's the, it's the act of sort of meditating on thinking about your mortality, that we are fragile, that we could go at any moment. And to me, it puts all this stuff in perspective, right? Um, it, you know, why, why stand up? Why risk your job? Why risk your life? Uh, for for what you think is right, because you're not going to be around forever. What are you putting off doing the right thing for? Got it. Uh, next one, I'll ask both of you guys. Um, how do you integrate stoicism and parenting? Ooh, ben, you start. <laughs> oh, you take it, Ryan. This is your wheelhouse, man. This is you have stoic dad. I'm just gonna. I'm so I purpose whatever you say. I do. I do an email every day called Daily Dad, which you can get at DailyDad.com. Um, there's an there's an Instagram for it as well, which I think is at Daily Dad. But uh, look, I think the the, the Stoics, the Sto- one of my favorite quotes from Epictetus, he says, uh, 
don't talk about your philosophy, embody it. And Marcus Aurelius says, let's let's not waste time debating what a good person is like. Let's be one. I think, you know, I get asked all the time, how do you teach, you know, stoicism to kids, whatever. I think you show it primarily by embodying the ideas. And then when they get older and they want to ask you about it, you can explain where it comes from. You know, stoicism is not a religion. It's not this thing that you have to inculcate in them when they're children. You don't have they don't have to be baptized. You don't have to go to church. It's a it's a way of thinking and being. Uh, and and I think it, it primarily relies upon sort of logic and, and wisdom. And so I think you show by example and then later you can explain. Mm. I highly recommend Daily Dad for those listening. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Uh, ben, do you have an answer or do you want to just uh, just say ditto and move uh, on? Uh, yeah, no, I can. Um, you know, I think that um, of any of the endeavors I've ever pursued, parenting can, is the most rewarding yet most frustrating. Um so you, you want it to go, you want these, you want to create perfect little beings. Um, and it's impossible. So yeah. it gets, it gets tough. Yeah. Um, they're, they, so I, I, the one big one, which I kind of, uh, is, you know, uh, recognizing what you can control. Um, and there's, you know, from the time that they're infants and they're getting up in the middle of the night and screaming and you need to like, um, you don't, you, you're not going to be able to control it much. So what your best thing to do is then respond appropriately and respond, um, in a way that's in line with the vision of who you want yourself to be as a dad. Mm. Um, and realize it's a little bit of that hindsight in the present moment, right? It's like, you're going to look back on this moment and what are you going to reflect on? What are you going to be the nostalgia about this? What are you going to think about this? And it's going to be this trying horrible time that you then regret, or you're going to look back on this with a, a sense of pride. And by the way, most parents do even the most trying times they look back on it like anything. Um, our greatest triumphs come through our, our struggles. Um, when you have the hard things going on, a colicky baby, when you have a kid that is struggling in school, when you have, um, kids that are not getting along, that's when the bonds happen. And that's when kind of the magic as, as a family or parenting takes place. So kind of recognize a little bit of this, um, perspective right now and being present in this moment. So the other thing I do, which, you know, is, um, in terms of, I, I, I kind of lean, I try as best I can, which has been incredibly hard during quarantine, but being present mm. because, um, I've created really bright lines, really strong, um, lines in the sand of, I, I don't bring my family to work. You got, I went through this. I learned from example, I try to bring my family to work because I own my business and we can have this amazing, and that's what I envisioned kids running around the gym and like, um, and realize how terrible that was. Yeah. And then likely I can come home whenever I want. So I came home at three 30 in the afternoon and spent time with the family and I came home with my laptop and how terrible that was. Um, so yeah. So what I've realized is that it's these really, really clear lines of when I'm at work, I'm at work and I pour everything into the work and I'm able to do that. And when I come home, I don't have work on my mind. I'm able to jump on the trampoline and play tickle monster and read books to my kids. It's, uh, it, it took me and, um, it was called out by my wife, um, saying, you're not doing this very well. Me thinking I'm killing it. Like I'm home at three 30 every day. I'm the best dad ever. And she's like, this is not working out. Um, so understanding that, that being present, um, the, the powerfulness of this, Ryan talked about leadership. I think that I love the, the, the emphasis on character. Um, I would, I would, I might put second place right behind that of just being present, you know, like, you know, I was thinking, I just had a discussion before we jumped on this and we were talking about, um, what Obama would have done. And I didn't vote for Obama, but, um, Obama, if this thing happened would have been in Minneapolis 
on the ground, healing people within hours of that happening. It's being present and being there. You have to, you have to take a stand and be there. And as a parent, it's just about, um, being there without your cell phone, without your work, without other things on your mind, like being present for them. No, I was probably over two minutes. No, no, I think, I think that's totally right. And I, I, I'm going to follow up with you about this work-life balance thing, because it's something I struggle with. So I, I got some questions for you, but I, I think having kids is a great, uh, stoic practice on the idea of, of how little is in your control. You know what I mean? It's very humbling. You can try, you can put everything in, in, you know, you can schedule your life down to the minute. You can put all these things in place and then somebody gets sick and then somebody has to do X. And then, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it is a, in a regularly sort of humbling, sobering, trying thing that is also deeply rewarding, but, but it, it forces you to practice these things, not just talk about them. I think that is a fantastic place to wrap up. Ryan, thank you so very much. Ryan, thanks, um, man. Awesome, thanks, Ryan. Guys. Good stuff, dude. Yep. Appreciate it. Yep. Uh, Huge we'll fan. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. We'll see yeah. everybody next week. Until then, stay well. You can get every episode of Chasing Excellence wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Until next time, thank you for listening. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.